Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, wine has been the topic of a presidential tweet. It is also a topic of discussion among those who look for alternative investments. Tom Gearing is managing director and co-founder of Cult Wines, based in London, but he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Tom, thank you very much for being here. What is Cult Wines? What is your business? So Cult Wines is a wine investment company specifically. So we're different to a traditional merchant or a wine broker or a wine auction house. We are set up completely to deal with private clients all over the world and to build up fine wine collections for the sole purpose of capital appreciation. So buying physical cases of wine, bottles of wine, storing those wines, insuring them, managing them on behalf of the clients, providing daily valuations for our online platform and then reselling the wines and advising them throughout that life cycle for investment purposes. So this is not to be drunk in the future. This is to be purchased and resold at a profit for our clients to benefit their overall investment portfolio. Now, I understand that you got involved in this in a big way before you could legally consume <laughs> any wine. At the age of 13, <laughs> you spotted a 12-bottle case of Domaine de la Romanie, Romanée Conti, right? This is a uh, very worthwhile and prestigious yep. wine. Yeah. What did you discover about it? So I was very fortunate when I was growing up. My father was actually in investment banking, but he was a massive wine collector, very passionate about wine. So I grew up around wine. I, I think the first time I even tasted wine was about 11 when I was taken to Burgundy with my father. Um, so he bought a lot of wine at auction. This is actually a really salient point in terms of what we do as a business. Um, and he bought a case of Domaine Romney Conti, Romney Conti 1959, original wooden casing. Now, if anyone knows a lot about wine, these particular bottles, they're producing very small quantities, but they come with almost like a serial number. So they have uh, numbers on the front, which obviously detail which bottle number it is. Um, so if you're buying an original case of six bottles, if it had never been tampered with, never been opened, it was the original six bottles, they should be uh, the same consecutive numbers. So whatever that number they are in the series, they should be consecutive. So one, two, three, four, five, six. When we got the case home, I opened it up. We were inspecting the bottles, taking photos, condition checking the wines. And we found out that the bottom layer of the case, so the bottom six bottles, when we looked at it, the numbers were not consecutive. So they were inconsequential. So what that means is at some point in time, someone had opened that case and replaced them. So immediately you think to yourself, are these wines counterfeit? Is there potentially some fraudulent activity going on? Because there's no way that these wines shouldn't be in that order. And the reason I say that's a salient point for what we do now as a company is that we now manage over $120 million of wine on behalf of our clients and actually making sure that our clients are protected from any potential for fraudulent activity, counterfeit bottling is essential. Because if you're buying wine for the purpose of reselling to make a, a, a profit, you need to make sure that you're selling wines that are authentic. And this has been a, you know, a big problem in the wine industry over the last 10 to 15 years. So that was obviously a very early experience in my, in my career. I wouldn't even say it was a career at that time. I was just 13 years of age, but it really has stayed with me. And it's something that we hold very dear to ourselves now, being a professional wine investment company advising private clients all over the world. 
All right, now I'm going to put you on the Twitter spot because earlier today, President Donald Trump said, quote, France makes excellent wine, but so does the United States. The problem is that France makes it very hard for the U.S. to sell its wines into France and charges big tariffs, whereas the U.S. makes it easy for French wines and charges very small tariffs. Not fair, must change. Is that accurate? Well, let's t- let's start with the accuracies because often there's not a lot of them with Donald Trump. So the accuracies are that French wine and U.S. wines are excellent. So he's correct with that point. What he's inaccurate about is the fact that in France, the domestic French market, well, the domestic market in France for consumption of wine is almost entirely French. I mean, if you're an Italian wine producer, Australian, New Zealand, they sell very little wine in the domestic market. In fact, I travel extensively in France. When I'm in Bordeaux, trying to get someone in Bordeaux to drink a Burgundy is impossible. You know, if you go to Bordeaux, all the wine shops have 100% Bordeaux. So in France, it's difficult to get to get people to drink outside their own region, let alone their own country. So the tariffs that he's talking about is absolute nonsense, in my opinion. I mean, having, you know, if Californian wine had zero import taxes to, to ship to export into France, it would make zero difference to whether someone in France would buy and consume Californian wines. And also the other thing to imagine is, you know, you go to a lot of these rural agricultural areas of France outside the more prestigious Bordeaux, Burgundy, but places, um, you know, in the Languedoc, Provence, whatever it might be. People can go to their local cooperative, the local cooperative, and they can get a gallon of wine for like two euros. So those type of individuals are never going to suddenly start buying American wine just because there's no tariffs on it. So it's really an economies of scale. So for me, I would look at this tweet and say it's political posturing. You know, this is nothing more than obviously something that's come up between Trump and Macron, and he's using it as a way to, you know, uh, you know, negotiate or, or bargain with with the French president. But I think in actual real economy of wine, it would make zero difference, in my opinion. It also seems as though there are a lot of idiosyncrasies when it comes to the wine and alcohol trade, because of course, in the United States, you have state boundaries that limit what can and cannot be sold and transported across uh, state State lines. lines, Uh, When you gave the idea that, all right, in France, the domestic market is so domestic that it would be like an American saying, I will not drink a wine that comes from the state of Oregon. I will only drink wine that comes from Napa. Yeah. Right? That's the kind of connection it is. Yeah, it really is like that. Are there a preponderance of French wines when it comes to this cult wine business, or is it starting to expand to include American labels, for example? Very, very good question. If you're looking at the investment market for fine wine, you know, you're, very, you're talking about probably 1% of all wine produced would be categorized as, say, investment grade. And that market's worth about $5 billion a year. Now, if you look at, say, our assets under management, our $120 million, around uh, 60% of it is in Bordeaux. Uh, about 15, 20% is in Burgundy. So really France, and then obviously you've got places like Champagne, et cetera, et cetera. So France is probably around 75, 80% of our total AUM. Outside of that, we have US um, is our next biggest uh, regional um, you know, breakdown within our portfolio, uh, Italian wines, and then new world regions like Australia, um, New Zealand, and, and, and even South America. But Californian wines uh, in particular, some of the Napa producers have been excellent for investment purposes. You know, some of the, the top wines have made fantastic returns for clients over I the long... I keep thinking of Screaming Eagle, yeah, for I, example. Is absolutely. That- I mean, Screaming Eagle is a very tough wine to, to source and acquire, and obviously it's producing very, very small quantities. But you're right, you know, if you were on that waiting list and you get those wines allocated to you, you're almost guaranteed to 
make a profit if you resell those wines because you're getting them at such a great price there's such little quantity available that when you resell you're almost guaranteed to make a good return but if you're looking outside of that you've got some up-and-coming producers um, obviously some more well-known ones like Opus One, Dominus that have done very well so I think the Californian wine wine market from an investment perspective is, is very strong and growing. Should I, I give you 20 seconds should I be concerned that I like screw top bottles? Um, not, not at all. I mean, I think, I think in the next 20 years, we might see a change in the industry, but there's just not enough scientific and enough back vintages of wines that have been produced in screw cap to really show whether they are, have any real differences to, to, to court closures. Well done. Thanks very much for being with us. Tom Gearing, he is Managing Director, Co-Founder of Cult Wines. Cheers to you and many thanks for being here. A bucket of salt. A bucket of salt. Those are the words used by a witness to the EU negotiator, chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier. He was speaking to European ministers. One witness said that Barnier said the parameters of a possible Brexit agreement are very largely defined. But the witness then said it was, should all be taken with a bucket of salt. Well, maybe he's got his own bucket of salt. David Danny Blanchflower, professor of economics, Dartmouth College, Hanover, New Hampshire, can be followed on Twitter at D underscore Blanchflower, joins us now. Danny Blanchflower, how big is your bucket of salt? Well, um, a pinch of salt seems um, obviously seems an exaggeration. Um, we're two years in. Uh, we, the, the UK government needs to get some kind of deal done, particularly before a European Council meeting of November the 25th. Um, and Brexit supposedly is going to happen March next year. Certainly doesn't look like it. The bucket of salt suggests that um, they're nowhere near to doing that. And you and I have talked about this several times. The Northern Ireland problem seems to be a large one. And I was in the UK last week and great fun was being made of a speech made by Dominic Rabb, the Brexit secretary, who appeared to have just realized that Britain was an island, um, which, <laughs> which, which meant that uh, trade deals in Dover, the port, were really important. So I think we're a long way away from any kind of deal. Um, May is in trouble, but it doesn't really look like within the party there are alternatives and outside the party. So this is Buckets of salt being rubbed in the wound, um, and we're nowhere near a deal, and maybe no deal at all is what will happen. Well done, Danny Blanchflower. I like the connections <laughs> there. I mean, I think maybe Mr. Rab should probably, Minister Rab should probably read a little Wadsworth. Maybe that will help him understand the disposition <laughs> yeah, of the, of the United Kingdom. No, no, exactly. We're two years in, and I mean, literally, it was all over the TV and the newspapers. He made a speech saying he'd only just really realized how important um, the port of Dover was and having these deals done. And preparations are being made by the UK government for no deal, including stockpiling medicines and uh, food. And there was even talk that the huge traffic jam, which was likely to occur at Dover, with lots of lorries, they would have to buy porter potties because a 30-mile jam would mean that, you know, some <laughs> yes. you have to deal with all eventualities. So this obviously looks disastrous. But what's interesting, I was looking in the FT today, it doesn't appear that um, polling has actually moved as far against uh, a Brexit as you might think. It's still pretty close in the polls, and there's big talk about having a second referendum. And the reality is that 
and the markets are sort of clear on this, the reality is it's not absolutely clear. Danny, well, uh, not to be uh, too pros, uh, uh, poetic about it, but, you know, King Richard II, Shakespeare, Sceptered Isle and all that, are the British just going to muddle through or is there a real feeling, and you were just there, is there a real feeling that things are going to be very different a year from now? Well, I certainly think that um, the, in, in some sense, people, are, as you rightly say, they're, they're muddling through. But I talked to a number of people, including a variety of academics from Europe, who were very concerned that sort of racial attacks on them, the sense that foreigners shouldn't be there had risen. So the, there was certainly a sense of that I had in conversations with people. But the Brits will eventually muddle through. But I think, as you, as you, as you were saying, that in the past, that's happened. They're just not clear where we are. But I think, honestly, it's a lack of political alternatives. Um, the, no one's really told an alternative to trying to find some muddle through um, outcome. I mean, I guess the classic would be whatever happens, declare victory, withdraw, and pretty much go back to a, to a situation pretty much like now. And, and, the, and basically the transition period will be a really long time. And a new government that comes in can actually change all that and go back to where we were. So I think buying time, pushing. You and I have talked about the famous phrase, kick the can down the road. Well, this is a, a giant can full of salt, and that's going to get pushed down the road. So I, th I think people are muddling through, but there are great concerns that things have changed, and particularly that, I mean, in the UK, the, the, the views about foreigners of something that's, you know, are you Polish? That kind of stuff has changed a bit. All right. Well, let's move from salted beef to pasta because I want to get your thoughts about <laughs> what's going on in Italy. Yeah. The International Monetary Fund coming out and warning that Italy's plan to increase spending carries, quote, substantial risks and would leave the country vulnerable to market turmoil. Well, there's an understatement. Right. Well, and, and the European Commission have said this, but in a sense, this is hardly surprising. You see the move to populism. You see the move of these political parties um, against against them, um, the austerity that was right. But hang on, Danny. Europe. But I mean, there's there's populism, and then there's just the inability to do simple math. No, I agree with that. Of course, the inability to do simple math. But that, I mean, in some sense, that's what's exactly been true in the Brexit conversation we've just had. Um, sim simple math is kind of what's got us here in the first place. I'm not suggesting I agree with it, but I think you're completely right. I don't think it's a surprise. Um, so now you have these parties like Five Star who got elected on. We're going to help the workers and so on. So they're going to start to push for this. And obviously the IMF and the EU Commission and others are going to push back. But in a sense, the, these groups have a point, which is that austerity has had a really large impact on people. And you might think that that explains a lot of the populism. But you're right. Simple math and facts don't seem to be the order of the day around the world right now. And that's where we are. All right. So I'm going to untether you from simple math and facts. <laughs> Give us your worst case scenario for what happens to Italy. Give you about half a minute. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, obviously, the talk a talk about um, not just Brexit, but I, I text it is obviously going to be on the table. And we're going to see a major confrontation. I mean, Pim, let's go back. These are double, these, Italy has double-digit unemployment still. Um, and so there's going to be a battle, a battle between the Commission, the IMF, and others to try and um, help. And it's probably going to be a, a major battle. And the worry would be 
that we won't just be talking about Brexit. We'll be talking down the road about Italy saying enough's enough, not least because what has the EU done essentially for those at the bottom end in Italy? Same argument was made with the, in France with the election. So I think it's going to be a mess. The ability to keep a government in place is a mess. Um, and this is going to, have to create more turmoil in the markets because people are hurting. Sounds like a messy recipe. Thank you very much. Danny Blanchflower, professor of economics, Dartmouth College, Hanover, New Hampshire. Follow him on Twitter, as we all do, at D underscore Blanchflower. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox. All natural ingredients, getting rid of artificial colors, flavors, and preservatives. Not for humans, but for dogs, cats, and your other pets. Here to tell us more more about the change in the world of pet nutrition and pet health and all things having to do with pets is Ron Coughlin. He is the chief executive of Petco, and they are based in San Diego. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Ron, thank you very much for being here. Appreciate it. Give people just the overview, first of all, of the pet and the pet business, and then we'll get into natural ingredients. Sounds good. Great to be here. So the pet business is a wonderful business. I've been the CEO at Petco now for five months, and the thing that is most impressive is just the love that pet owners have for their pets. As a business, it's a rapidly growing uh, business, growing 6% across, and food business is a $25 billion business, so it, it is a big business. I was going to say the love that they have for their pets and the bottomless pocket of money that they spend. Some of that's, of course, going to be spent on food. And you've taken a particular position at Petco. Tell us what you decided to do. That's right. So one of the things that's clear is pet owners want to do the right thing for their pets. And that includes feeding them the right food. And at Petco, for 50 years, we've sought to do the right thing for pet parents and pet owners the pets that they love. So we decided to take a stand against artificial flavors, artificial colors, and artificial preservatives. And we are announcing that we'll be eliminating products that have those ingredients starting in 2019. Things like ethanol, things like sulfur dioxide, things like hydrogen, I can't even pronounce half these chemicals, <laughs> that uh, ethanol, FD&C, yellow, glycerol, we don't think that they belong in our pets. So we're eliminating them and we're the first uh, company, major pet food company that will eliminate them. Okay, when you mentioned pet food company, that's got me thinking that there's a whole supply chain out there that either has to adapt or they're not gonna get into the Petco store. Tell us yeah. what the reaction has been and how that might change your mix of vendors. So there's really a continuum of three different types of uh, pet food companies. Um, one is those that are already all natural. And we sell a lot of products from companies like Merrick, companies like Taste of the Wild, as an example. Then there are others who said, great idea. We're going to reformulate or we're going to launch natural versions of our line. And we're going to work really hard to make sure that that's successful. Then there are others that say, you know what, we're not going to make the changes with the artificial ingredients. And those, uh, those companies won't be on our shelves anymore because we don't think they're doing the right thing for our customers. What about the brands that are attached to various types of pet food? And we were talking just before you came on, you know, many people remember pet food as Alpo. That was all there was. 
are those brands catching up to this preservative, artificial-free food, or are they sort of slow walking the the change? Some of them are far behind, like the ones that you mentioned. Others are making the change and will actually have their natural lines in our stores when we start in January. And then others are far ahead on already organic foods, all natural foods, and lacking artificials. What about the price point of these kinds of foods? Are they higher? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a uh, misnomer that people think because you're going uh, eliminating artificial that necessarily things are much more expensive. We pride ourselves on having an array of price points. So we'll have foods without artificials in the opening price points. We'll have a product like our wholehearted own brand that is uh, that doesn't have those artificials in the mid price points. And then we'll have, you know, wonderful high end products like the Merricks and the Taste of the Wilds or Canada's that I mentioned earlier. Now, of course, Petco, much more than just pet food. You've got operations, grooming, you've got training, you've got a variety of things. You also have partnerships with non-Petco outlets. For example, in Canada, I believe right. you sell products through a third party. That's right. So the future of Petco, the new Petco, as you will, is about it being a nutrition powerhouse, but also being a services powerhouse. Our groomers do a wonderful job. I visited over 100 grooming salons in my first five months, and the passion that they have for the pets, sometimes I wonder whether they like the pets more than they like human beings. If you, if you, you have wonder? a- wonder? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's obvious most of the time. If you have a new pet, you want to come to a Petco to get them trained. And increasingly, if you want vet services, you can come to a Petco. And that's something we'll be scaling out. So the whole idea is a nutrition powerhouse and a services powerhouse. And at the end of the day, we want to be the pet parent's partner on making sure we're taking great care of those pets. Did you have to learn a whole new vocabulary? I mean, because your previous role was at Hewlett-Packard and PepsiCo do you have to learn a whole new group of you know, vocabulary in order to talk about pets and their owners? The first step was opening up your heart. People have a lot more passion for the pets than they do have the PCs. Even though they loved our PCs, um, they have a lot more passion. But there is a lot of vocabulary. But at the end of the day, it's taking care of something that's precious to people. And we take that very seriously. And you're doing about $4 billion worth of business a year, right? Uh, you're owned by... Capital Partners, CVC, CVC and, and the Canadian Pension Plan Investment right. Board. Is it easier in a way to work for a privately held company? You know, I've been in uh, public companies my whole career pretty much. And there's a wariness about PE. And I will tell you that it has been wonderful. The support you get, the contacts, the insight. But also, you know, they give me a, a rope to, to run as well. So it's been a wonderful experience. And given what's going on with the markets, it's been ni- nice not to be public. Thanks very much for being with us. Ron Coglin. he is the chief executive of Petco. Sending out non-preservative, artificial, ingredient-free food for your pets. And the topic now is deficits, budget deficits when it comes to the federal government. And here to tell us more is Ira Jersey. He is chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, you have dubbed this deficit day at Bloomberg, (laughs) haven't you? 
Yeah, so so uh, both myself and our uh, colleagues at Bloomberg Economics focused on the deficit today and some um, reports we put out. And, and, you know, we took two different angles. So um, my colleagues in Bloomberg Economics think that maybe the government's own estimates of what the deficit's going to be uh, could be as wrong as $160 billion in uh, the 2020 fiscal year. And I think that, you know, that's meaningful, obviously, for what I do, because that means that the Treasury Department might have to issue um, you know, an, an extra, call it $15 billion a month of debt that maybe we, um, you know, some people don't have in their forecasts right now. Okay. If they don't have it in their forecast, do they have the money in their piggy bank in order to buy all that debt? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the questions is at what point do people balk and say, you know, deficits are too big. So normally it's, you know, when you have growing deficits, as long as the deficit is growing somewhere around the, the, um, the level of nominal GDP growth, it's not really that much of an issue because you, that means that the, you know, the entire economy is growing. You can fund the deficits because you have higher income. You have part of that income is going to be saved, and, and corporations even need um, you know, to fund pensions and other things like that. So there's, there's money coming in. But the, the thing is, is that at this point, at least for the next several years, you're not likely to see that. You're likely to see deficits growing faster than the level of nominal GDP growth, and that's where you can get challenged, and that's why you need foreign investors, for example, to at least make up a little bit of the shortfall from domestic uh, investors. And, and you haven't seen that. The last five years, foreign investors have uh, not been uh, not been buying uh, U.S. debt on a net basis. So they're still very large holders, but they haven't been buying more debt than than they had, say, uh, in 2008-9-10. Ira Jersey, I want to get you in trouble right now. Is any of this linked to the tax cuts that have decreased revenue for the U.S. Treasury? Uh, yeah, 100 percent. Well, not, not, not all of it. I can't say 100 percent, but a large portion of this has to do with uh, with lower spending than was anticipated, say, three years ago when we were um, making budget deficit forecasts. Um, the, the, the unrealistic thing that the government has, and this is what my Bloomberg economics team did a, did a very good job pointing out, is that the there's this expectation that you're going to have significantly higher revenue in 2020, 21, 22, um, but that's predicated on growth uh, being faster, there's uh, that's just a little bit unrealistic in, in their view. And that's one reason why a lot of these forecasts have missed over the past several years. And again, by, by not, uh, by by pretty large amounts. I mean, $160 billion in the, the, the grand scheme of things might not seem like a lot, uh, you know, when, when the government has to issue, um, you know, a trillion dollars. But, you know, it's a 10 or 15 percent increase in the deficit uh, above and beyond what we thought it was going to be. So that, that's very meaningful. Now, Ira, isn't there a push-pull when it comes to investors? Because there are groups of investors that have to own what is described as the most riskless asset, which would be U.S. Treasuries. Yet, on the other hand, they all have benchmarks and in order to attract investors, will the Treasury have to let interest rates increase? Well, the, I, the Treasury Department, um, you know, they have to fund the government, right? And so, so they don't have a choice but to issue. Their decision is where to issue and, and how much of each maturity to issue. So how many T-bills are there going to be compared right. to, Right, short-term versus long-term. Right. And, and what they've done is they've been trying to keep 
the uh, the portfolio, the weighted average maturity of Treasury debt, reasonably long. Um, our estimate is is that it will it will fall a little bit over the next four years, primarily because they're going to have to issue a little bit more in terms of T bills. Now, the good thing about that is that, and you know, we view uh, our view is that the Fed's probably going to hike interest rates another three or four times before they stop, um, and then the next move is likely to be for lower interest rates. So the fact that they're issuing more short-term debt means that interest costs in aggregate would be lower um, than they would be if, say, interest rates stayed uh, stayed relatively high um, for for the next three or four years. Um, right. You know, the, that's that push-pull. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but at the same time, you know, a lot of people are you know, you, you look at money market flows, and money market flows are actually getting bigger now. And a big reason for that is the fact that there's interest rates that are well above zero, right? It was hard to invest in a money market fund when you were making maybe three basis points in that money market fund. Now you're making, you know, two-ish percent, plus or minus, depending on, on what fund and how much risk you're taking. That's a bit more attractive to a lot of people. So you do see at least some inflows, um, and, and that's increasing demand for things like treasury bills, which obviously the government's issuing more of. Ira Jersey, give you 15 seconds. Does it make sense that a four-week bill at 2.2% versus a one-year at 2.72%? Does that make sense? Yeah, so so that's all about the expectations of the Fed. The reason why you know you wind up having you know fifty-ish basis points there in in that nine months part of the curve is just it all has to do with expectations uh, that the Fed's going to hike a couple of times in between those maturities. Got it. Thank you very much. As always, Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and we've got a little buying at the end of the curve. The 30-year yield of 3.36%. The 30-year bond, it is up 10, 30 seconds. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.